How to Play, Episode 29B, Through the Ages, Part 2. Hello and welcome to the How to Play podcast, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Buffalo, New York. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, and this podcast is about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I give an explanation of how to play a game, just as if I was sitting across the table from you and we were about to play the game together. This podcast is intended for use in learning about a game you may not know much about, learning how to play a game by yourself, or to serve as a model on how to explain the rules of this game or others. If you like the show, join and participate in our guild at BoardGameGeek. For more information about all the How to Play podcast episodes, the corresponding teaching guides, and the discussion forums, refer to the How to Play Geek list, for which you can find a link there at the guild. You can also check out our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com where you can support the show with a PayPal donation, and I can be contacted at the Guild on BoardGameGeek or directly at my email address, howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hi everybody and welcome back. Hopefully you just recently finished your first game of Through the Ages playing through the simple version using the explanation in episode 29, part 1. The second episode for Through the Ages is intended to help you through the advanced or the full game. If you're listening to this episode first by mistake, make sure to go back and download episode 29A, to hear the first part of this explanation and get started on Through the Ages. In that episode, we covered in detail all the rules you needed to know the simple game. And now we're going to take it a step further and get into playing the advanced game or the full game. Don't try listening to this and do the whole thing all at once. If you do, I'll know I'm like Santa Claus. And then you'll have to live with the guilt of that for the rest of your life. Now you wouldn't want that, would you? So if if you're planning on doing that, stop now. This is your last chance. Go back, play the simple game, and then come back in a little bit. Heck, if you need to, play a solo two-player game so you can at least work your way through it so you have an understanding so far of what we're doing. But for those of us who have done the simple game and aren't liars, congratulations. You are ready to graduate to the advanced game or the full game. So let's get into the meat, part two. How to play the advanced or full game. Okay, so obviously one of the big things that changes when we go to the advanced game or the full game is the game is simply longer. With the advanced game we play through two decks and with the full game we play through all three decks. But that's not actually the biggest change. The biggest change is the addition of the military deck for each age. The military cards add a whole nother level to this game and really add a lot to the experience. So let's start with that. Let's get into talking about the military cards and how they work. The military cards. All right, so how do you get military cards? Well, you get them with those red markers. Attention! Oh, great, you're here. So, Private, you finally decided to leave your fantasy land and come out and get a taste of the real world. Yes. Uh, yes, we're, we're going to play a game with the military cards. Um, so it, it would be just wonderful if you could help me explain some of these different cards. So let's now talk about these red markers. We talked a little bit about them in the simple rules. 
one of the functions and an important function for military actions is to spend them for making workers into military units. If you want to make a worker into a warrior, you know how normally when you make workers into miners, you use white markers. But if you ever change a worker into a military unit, you get to spend a red marker instead or a red action. And it's good to keep in mind you can do those red and white actions in any order. Now on most turns, you're still not going to use a lot of those military actions which is good because each military action that you don't use is going to let you draw a military card, which give you all sorts of nice benefits. In fact, most of the turns you, you probably won't use a military action. You'll get to draw military cards for the red markers that you have. Remember, you start the game with two red markers. So on a lot of turns, you'll get to draw two military cards at the end of each of these turns. That's done during that production step at the end of your turn when you're getting your food and your ore and all those other things. You play a lot of these military cards at the beginning of your turn. There's now a new step to your turn. Basically, the only thing you did on your turns before was do what was called the action phase where you're generally just spending civil actions and then you produce stuff. But now you have a starting step to your turn called the political action. And during that political action step, you'll have the opportunity to play one of these military cards. So what does the addition of this step mean for the first few turns of the game? Well, think about it. On the first turn, all we did was pick up civil cards. Remember, it's just sort of a setup turn. On the second turn is the first real turn. And at the end of that second turn, you'll have leftover military actions. So at that point, you'll probably be able to draw one or most likely two military cards. Then, since you play most of them at the beginning of your turn, at the beginning of your third turn is the first time you'll really be able to take advantage of this political action step. At that point, you'll be able to play one of these cards of four different types. So after the previous player finishes their turn, they do production, you set up the card row, it is then what is called the political action step. And you can play one of four different colors of cards green, brown, blue, or black. So we need to talk about these four different kinds of cards. But first of all, let's talk a little generally about why it's good to get these cards. Sergeant Redmarker, maybe you can help us with that. Military cards mean power, and power is good. The more military cards you have, the more control you will have over events that will affect the civilizations. It will also give you options to launch attacks on weaker civilizations or declare all-out war. Military cards allow you to start building armies, colonize territories, or for weaklings such as yourself, you would probably use them for making packs with other players or defending your puny, wimpy colony. Well, I guess I can't deny what the sergeant there is saying. Having military cards really will allow you to have a lot more options in the game. The events that occurred somewhat randomly in that simple game will start to be dictated by the players. And players who have a lot of cards will be able to control the events that come out. If you want to be a warmonger and really go after people and punish them for being weak like Sergeant Red Marker would, STRENGTH IS VICTORY! Yes, indeed. You could get some of these cards to attack other players, but even if you don't plan on doing a lot of attacking, 
Having military cards can help defend yourself. So that's why getting more of these red actions can be a benefit, just like getting more white actions. Though there is a drawing cap of three per turn. You can get a max of three of these to draw at the end of your turn. It's still nice to have four or five red actions because you can use the extra actions to build military units or in order to play some of those military cards. But let's get into the specific cards. We'll start with the most common card that is used and those are the green cards. The green cards are events and territories and both of these types of cards are played the same way. At the start of the game there will be a group of those A events four, five, or six, depending on the number of players. But they won't come out on the start player's turn. How those events come out works a little bit differently. Let's say you're playing with three players. In this case, the number of random events that start the game from the A deck is five. So you would randomly pick five of those cards and those would start on the current events deck. Now, when a player gets to their third turn, if they have one of these green cards and would like to play one, they can do that as their political action. They would look at the events that they have. They all have different abilities. You can play one of those event cards, or you can also play a territory card in this way. So you would look through them and decide which one of those most benefits you. And if there isn't one there that benefits you, then it's likely you might just pass. Because if you play one of those, you know it's going to come out sometime in the future. And that's the trick with these events. When you play one of these cards, and remember it must be a green card, it does not get played immediately. You are seeding the events that are going to happen in the game down the road. You'll place it in that future event stack face down. So you will know what this event is that's going to come out, but the other players will not. For playing an event card, you get a bonus. In age one, you get one victory point. Age two, you get two. Age three, you get three. And then an event from the current events deck flips over. And those are those various events that generally give you different kinds of bonuses. So that's how the first five events will be played in a three-player game. Players will play an event that's going to happen in the future. They'll score a point for doing so, and one of those random events will come up. Now, when that current event stack is empty, the next event card that is played will reset the event stack. So the future events will become the current events. The future events will get shuffled up and will flip the top one up. The card that is just played will go into the future events to wait till a stack of five is created so that those events can start coming out. So after the first five events in a three-player game, then the events that are going to occur have all been played by one of the players. So one of the advantages of playing events is you know what's going to happen and you can sort of set up for it in the future. Another advantage is many of them benefit the civilization who has the most military strength, referred to as the strongest civilization. Either that or they punish civilizations who are the weakest civilizations. So if you plan on being a very strong civilization, you can set up a, a lot of strength, play those events in there, and wait for the goodies to come to you. So that's how events work, and more specifically, the green cards, because when you play into these stacks, you'll play green cards, which might be events or territories. When you play a green card, you play it into the future events, you score a point, you flip a current event, and you resolve whatever that says. Once the current events are gone, you shuffle up the stack of future events, and it should be, if you're playing a three-player game, a stack of five cards, and those are the next five that will come out. It's really a neat system. Now, most of the events are things that just sort of affect everyone, like everyone loses a population, or the strongest civilization scores points. And those are the various event cards. But there's also a set of cards called territories. 
Territories are played to the future events stack just like regular events, but when they come out they resolve a bit differently. Territories are discovered regions that the civilizations can colonize to get bonuses. This essentially triggers an auction. Now it does take a little while for these territories to come out, as you have to work your way through the starter events, and one of these territories would have to be played into the future events by a player, so it's probably going to be about five or seven turns before you see these, which is good because you're going to need some military units in order to take over these territories and colonize them. When a territory flips up, the civilizations are going to have an auction to see who is willing to sacrifice the most strength worth of military units in order to take over that territory. The players will probably want the territory, as colonizing a new territory gives you an immediate bonus and a permanent bonus. The immediate bonus is shown in the center of the card, the permanent bonus on the bottom. For example, one of the territories is, is called Fertile Territory. The one-time bonus is you get to produce three food immediately. The permanent bonus is you get three more yellow markers from the stock, and you get to put that in your population bank. This is going to make your people cheaper, your consumption lower, and make your people happier. Getting more tokens in your bank is a nice thing. So players are going to want this. So as a simple example, in order to take it, you need to sacrifice military units and that's what you're bidding. And the number that you're bidding is the amount of strength that you're going to sacrifice. So warriors add one military strength and swordsmen and knights add two military strength. So say I bid one, the next player bid two, the third player bid three, and I just didn't have that many military units, so I pass and the other players pass. The third player would win the bid with three. He would immediately have to give up three strength worth of military units. Maybe, for example, he had a knight with a strength of two and a warrior with a strength of one. For winning the bid, he would have to sacrifice those yellow markers. So he would take those yellow markers off, put them back in his population bank. He would claim the territory and get those two bonuses. Now, since it was my turn, my play would continue. I'm now in my action phase, and I just go ahead with my actions. Now, keep in mind that the player that bid three and just sacrificed all those units just went back on the strength chart three spaces, so we would immediately slide back his marker on the strength chart. So colonizing gives you nice bonuses, but it can leave you weaker, which can make you easy prey to other civilizations in future turns. But that's how colonizing works. When one flips over, it starts an auction, the player whose turn it is starts, and players bid on how much strength they want to sacrifice. Keep in mind you're bidding strength, not how much ore the units cost to produce. So those are the green cards, and on a lot of the turns, players will want to play one of those green cards, either events or territories, for many reasons, because they score points for doing so, and they have control of the events that are coming up. Now, if you are a weaker civilization and the cards that you have in your hand punish the weakest civilization, you may think twice about playing one of those and you may pass. But that's just one of the types of cards you can play, the green events. Another option is if you have a brown aggression card in your hand, you can directly attack another civilization. Strength leads to victory! So the brown cards are direct attacks called aggression. In order to attack another civilization, you must be stronger than them on the strength chart. There is a way to increase your strength for a one-time bonus if you really want to attack someone. You can sacrifice your units in order to increase your strength. So say I had two warriors, I would be allowed to sacrifice one of them in order to get that unit strength again. 
I have two warriors. I'm going to sacrifice one of them. The sacrificed one gives me an additional one strength. I now have a strength of three. If I'm stronger than another civilization, I could play one of these brown cards on them. For example, there's a brown card called Raid. The card has a number of red circles on it. You have to pay military actions in order to do an aggression on someone. So I would pay that military action, and I'd say, I'm going to raid you. I have a military strength of three. I have to declare how much strength I'm bringing at him, and that strength must be larger than his. He is then given that same option, the option to sacrifice some of his units to increase his strength. Say he had two warriors as well. He needs to at least match or tie the strength that I am bringing at him in order to nullify the event. If I choose not to, or am unable to match his strength, then the text on the card occurs. So in this example, my defender has two warrior units. He has a choice. He can sacrifice one of those warrior units to bring his strength up to three, canceling the event, or he can allow me to execute the event by not sacrificing his warrior. All of the brown aggressions do nasty things to your opponents. Some of them let you steal ore or food. Some of them let you destroy their buildings and give you ore in exchange. Some of them let you assassinate their leaders. So this is one of many reasons why you need to keep your strength up with the other players. Now there's one more factor that comes into both of these events, both the territory bids and the aggressions. There are in the military deck bonus cards, and the bonus cards help you defend against an aggression or to increase your bid in colonization. In age one, the bonus cards say defense plus two, colonization plus one. So in the raid example that I just described, if I raided my opponent, the strength score is 3 to 2. If he had one of these defense plus 2 cards in his hand, he could play that card. Now he has a strength of 4. He has more strength than me. He didn't have to sacrifice any units, and the effect of the aggression is canceled. Players could even play multiple bonus cards if necessary to fend off that aggression. Now a lot of times, winning these aggressions can be difficult. Most of the time they will get canceled, but still a lot of the times playing them is valuable as you can force your opponents to burn up these bonus cards or occasionally sacrifice units. Generally, it's good to use aggressions against opponents when you are stronger than them and you don't have to sacrifice anything and you're just forcing them to make the decision whether to take a nasty penalty or to burn up some bonus cards or sacrifice some units. And the bonus cards are also used in those colony bids. So the first bonus card, say colonization plus one. This allows me, if I had just one warrior down, no other military units, I could bid two. I don't have to show the card in my hand, but I just bid two, implying that I have a card in my hand that I can play if I win the bid. You, of course, aren't allowed to bid anything that you are incapable of paying with the total strength of your units and your bonus cards. I'm also unable to bid one for a colony, and if I win it, just use my card alone to take the colony. You must sacrifice at least one unit in order to take a colony. Alright, so the difference between these two things can be a bit confusing. So what's the difference between a colony bid and a brown aggression? A colony bid is triggered when an event card is played and a territory flips up. The start player gets the first chance to bid. He's bidding how many units he wants to sacrifice. This bidding can go around the table as long as players want to increase the bid, and the player who bids the most will win the territory and those positive effects for getting the territory. They're going to have to immediately sacrifice at least one unit and maybe supplement that with playing some bonus cards in order to fulfill their bid. The brown aggressions are played a little bit differently. 
The brown aggressions are played by a player to directly attack another player who is weaker than them. If you want to make yourself stronger just to be able to play a brown aggression, or in order to make your aggression more difficult to stop, you can sacrifice units in order to have a higher strength than them for that one turn. Normally though this isn't recommended. Normally you use the aggressions when you have a strength advantage already on someone and you want to force them to either sacrifice units, play bonus cards, or face the penalty that the brown aggression card makes them pay. And the difference between the aggressions and the colony bids is the aggression is a one-shot deal. The attacker says, I'm coming at you with this much strength, he can sacrifice units if he wants, and then the defender simply has to match that. There's no going back and forth. Okay, so those are the two most common things that are done during the political action phase. Actually, there's three most common things that are done during the political action phase. A player either plays an event, scores points, and flips up a new event, and the effect would occur, or there would be a colony there, and a, and a bid would be triggered. The second most common thing that would happen is a player attacks another player with a brown aggression card. The third most common thing that happens is a player simply passes because they don't want to play any of those events in their hand, or they simply don't have a valid card to play. There's a couple other possibilities that you can do during that step, but they don't happen very often. There's a couple cards in the military deck called Pacts, and when you play a Pact, you choose an opponent and you say, all right, we're going to agree to this, and usually it gives both of you some benefits. And then that other player can accept that or decline it. If they accept it, then that Pact stays in play for as long as the players want to. In order to get rid of it, a player needs to spend a political action. Instead of playing a card, say, I'm canceling the pact. It's important to note that in the two-player game, the packs are not used for obvious reasons. Your final option of something you could do during the political action phase is to declare war on a civilization. Wars work a bit differently than aggressions. Wars are usually played when you have a significant advantage in strength over your opponent. Maybe I'm 5 or even 10 higher than my opponent in strength. Now is a good time to play a war. Wars usually take 2 or 3 military actions in order to be played, and you play them in lieu of playing an event card or an aggression card. When you play a war, wars take a long time to get going. So you declare the war on one turn, and on your next turn, the war will resolve. This will give you a chance to boost your military strength on that turn, but keep in mind it will also give your opponent a full turn to get ready for this war. On the following turn, you look at both players' strengths. Then, just like an aggression card, the person who played the card gets a chance to sacrifice as many units as they want in order to boost their strength by those units' strength. The defender then gets a chance to sacrifice as many units as they would like to get your final strength count on both sides. You'll note that the defender is given an advantage in both these wars and aggression cards by getting to decide last how many units to sacrifice. You compare the strengths of the two civilizations, and it's the difference between those two strengths that determine the effect. One of the most common wars is a war over culture. Say the difference in strength was 5 points. Say my strength was 15 and his strength was 10. Whoever the winner is gets to steal points from the loser. So the loser would go back 5 victory points and the winner would go up 5 victory points. It also works similarly for science and yellow markers and blue markers. It depends on the war that you declare. But the whole idea is if, if someone lags much too far behind in military, say they were 10 points behind you, 
that war would result in a 20 victory point swing. He would lose 10 points and you would gain 10 points. These do not become available until the middle of the game. There aren't any war cards until you get to the Age 2 military deck. And at that point, there are a few war cards in the Age 2 and Age 3 military decks. There's not a ton of them, though. So having a lot of military actions and drawing a lot of cards gives you better chances in order to get one of these war cards. This is, this is a part I, I just don't get. What, what is the deal with this, Sergeant Redmarker? You have a question, microphone boy! Why, if I want to declare war on someone, why do I need to have a card out of the deck? And if I'm unlucky enough not to draw that card, then, then I can't declare war on them? Or if I want to attack them, if I want to raid them, I'm not allowed to unless I have a certain card that says I'm allowed to raid? What is that all about? Mmm, soldiers need battle plans! Do you think it's easy to run into a town and city and start setting things on fire? It, it, it doesn't seem that complicated. You just, you know, ride in with horses and start setting stuff on fire. It's harder than it looks. It's all quite complex. And this military deck is a abstract representation of your military capabilities. All right. All right. Fair enough. Let, let's get back to these cards. A few final notes about wars. It's important to note that those bonus cards that we talked about earlier are not able to be used in wars. They won't save your behind if you've gone really weak and another player is about to crush you. You need some kind of military to protect your civilization. Also, the resolution of a war does not count as your political action. So, on one turn, you'll play the war. On the next turn, you'll start by resolving the war, and then you can follow that up with another action by playing a green event card, a brown aggression, or heck, declare another war. Why not? So that's it. That's the political phase. It sounds like a lot, but it's really not that complex. At the beginning of your turn, you're either going to play a green event. If you're really stronger than someone else, you might play a brown aggression, or you'll pass. Occasionally, you might get one of those blue pact cards to start a pact with another player, or later in the game, you might declare war, or if you really don't like that pact anymore, instead of playing a card, you can cancel the pact. Keep in mind, there's also those bonus cards, and those bonus cards can help you when there's a bid for a colony, or if another player has played an aggression against you. And that's it. But wait, that is not all of the cards in the military deck. There's one more type of card. And these are the red cards, and they're called tactics cards. Tactic cards work a bit different because they're the only cards in the military deck that aren't played during that political phase. They're actually played during the main action phase. What tactics cards allow you to do is to create armies and gives you bonuses to your military strength. So you play the tactics cards during the action phase when you're do doing your normal actions, like increasing your population and drawing cards and such. To play one of those cards costs you one of your military actions. On that card will be a certain combination of military unit icons and a number. For example, we have the fighting band with two infantry symbols on it. The infantry symbol is a sword and a shield and the number is a one. What that tells you is you can create fighting bands now. For every two infantry units, you get a one-point bonus. So if I had two warriors, warriors are infantry units, I would get the one bonus, and my strength would be three. I am allowed to create multiples of these armies. So if I had four warrior units, I would have two armies. Each of the warriors is worth one. I have four warriors. I get two army bonuses. My strength is six. 
you're only allowed to have one of these tactics cards at a time. So say I get knights and I decide I really want to focus on cavalry instead. Maybe I could play the light cavalry tactics card. Light cavalry says for every two cavalries, you get a two-point bonus. Knights have a strength of two. So if I got two knights and I had the cavalry card down, my bonus is two, two, four, six. I'd now have a military strength of six. And these tactics cards can be very important in boosting your military strength. You could even use them in the colony bid. If you send a full army during a colony bid, for example, say I had fighting band and I had two warriors, my two warriors get a one-point bonus, so I could make a bid of three and send my whole fighting band. If you only send part of an army, then you don't get the bonus. But that's how those red tactics cards work. And that's it. That's the military deck, and that's how the military cards work. To review, for each red marker you don't use, up to three, you're going to get to draw that many military cards. Most of the cards are played at the beginning of your turn. Starting with the third turn, you're going to get to play one of those. Most of the time, you'll play an event card. You might play an aggression and attack another player. Whenever you play an event card, a new event pops up. One of those events might be a colony, which would trigger a bid on how many units players wanted to sacrifice. Players can play blue packs, and later in the game they can declare war on each other. And of course, don't forget that you can pass. During the action phase, you could play one of those tactics cards, which will allow you to build certain combinations of units to give you a military strength bonus. Whew, that is quite a lot. Now, the military deck isn't the only thing that the advanced and the full game adds. There's just a few more important rules that we need to get to. Other concepts added to the advanced game. In the simple game, I'm sure you saw those smiley faces. Smiley faces just gave you points in the simple game. They're much more important in the advanced game. As you empty sections of the population bank, your people are going to need more and more happiness. As you empty out sections, you can see it's divided into sections. When you take the last yellow marker with a smiley face beneath it, you're required to have at least that many smiley faces. So you can have zero smiley faces until you remove two yellow markers. Then you will need at least one smiley face. You track this with a cube placed on that happiness track. There's a lot of ways to get smiley faces. You can get them from religion. You can get them from later technologies such as drama or sports. And many of the wonders give smiley faces. But you're going to have to find a way to get at least a few of them. If you get to the production and you do not have enough smiley faces, life is bad for you. Because you get no production. You get no food or ideas or culture points. It's horribly, terribly bad. So it is nearly mandatory to make sure that you have enough happiness at the end of each turn. A last resort is you can use extra workers in order to act as sort of jesters. They don't call them jesters in the rules. They call them discontent workers. Some of the cards refer to discontent workers. And so if you are short smiley faces, you can use one or more of the workers to act as jesters and place them on that happiness track in order to fill the slots that you need. Next, corruption. Corruption is ignored in the simple game. When you get to the advanced game, you're only allowed to have so many of those blue tokens out of your blue bank at any one time. If after you do your production, you have uncovered the circle that says 2 corruption, 4 corruption, or 6 corruption, you have to pay that much ore back to the bank. And ore is a very valuable resource, so this really hurts. 
Occasionally, you may have to pay that to corruption, but try very hard to avoid that as losing ore is a tough penalty. The way to see if you're going to have corruption is, before you say that you're done with your turn, look how many farmers and miners that you have and how many tokens they're going to pull out of that bank. And if you're going to pull enough out of there to uncover that two corruption circle, that will be bad for you. The order of production is important. Remember, you get your food for your farms, and then you get to pay consumption. And sometimes consumption can help you actually avoid the corruption. So you can look at how many tokens you're going to bring up, minus your amount of consumption, and see if you'll still have uncovered that corruption circle. Avoid corruption. The consequence of this is there's lots of actions you're going to want to take, but the game sort of forces you to constantly be using those resources and doesn't let you stockpile them. Next, the end of an era. We need to talk about obsolescence now that we're playing more than one age. At the end of Era 1, which is triggered when the last Era 1 card is added to the card row, Era 1 is over, and the previous Era becomes obsolete. So a lot of people get confused. They think Era 1 becomes obsolete at the end of Era 1. No, Era A becomes obsolete at the end of Era 1. And at the end of Era 2, going into Era 3, Era 1 becomes obsolete. What does this affect? At the end of Era 1, remember, A cards become obsolete. So at that point, any A cards that you still had in your hand, military or civil, must be discarded. Also at that point, leaders will die. The A leaders would die at the end of Age 1 if you haven't already replaced them with an Age 1 leader. I mean, leaders are allowed to live 300, 400 years, but any years after that is just ridiculous. So they have to die at some point. They die at the end of the following age. Also, if you haven't finished a wonder, if you hadn't finished an A wonder at the end of era one, they go away. You are too slow. And pacts finally get canceled. There's no A pacts, but at the end of era two, any age one pacts will get discarded automatically. Nothing else goes away. None of the other cards in play, the technologies and the built wonders are all fine. They're not going anywhere. If you're playing the full game, at the end of age 1, 2, and 3, each player loses two yellow tokens from their population bank back to the main stock. This adds a little extra challenge in meeting your happiness and paying the food and consumption as time passes by in your civilization. After age 3 is over, we have a brief age 4. After the last age 3 card is added to the card row, all the other players are going to get at least one more turn, and then the game will be over. You'll finish out that round, and then everyone will get one more turn. The exception to this is if the cards run out on the start player's turn, then that's the last round. Everybody else gets one more turn, and that is it. Players always get an equal number of turns in this game, kept track of by using that start player card. There's one more set of events in the military deck that we really need to talk about as they are very important. And these are event cards with the first words impact of. For example, impact of government, impact of happiness, impact of population. These are huge victory point bonus cards. They give you culture points for having certain things. For example, how many actions that you have, or how many wonders that you have, or how many happy faces that you have, or how many workers that you have. When you play the advanced game, which just plays two ages, these cards are not in play, obviously. But you do set them up at the beginning of the game. You are to sort all those cards out, 
and randomly pull out four face up for everyone to look at at the beginning of the game. This allows for players to have targets for things to shoot for by the end of the game. In the full game, it works quite differently because you don't know which of these are going to come out because they're played just like regular event cards. You will draw them from having extra military actions and then you will set them in that future events deck. The one thing that's different about these impact cards is some of them might come out during normal play, but if they don't, at the end of the game, you're gonna flip over all the played events and any impact cards that are there still get scored. So you will know any of these impact cards that you play will at some point get scored, either near the end of the game or at the end of the game. For example, the impact of happiness, I know that smiley faces are gonna get scored, so I should really try to shoot for getting a lot of smiley faces. This is very important at the end of the game because you're gonna draw these and you're gonna have control over whether or not to put these in that event deck. And if you don't have those things or the capability to get those things, such as happy faces or wonders and other players have more than you, obviously you're not going to wanna play them because no matter what, when you put them in there, they will get scored. So that brings us to the end of the game. At the end of the game, you're going to flip over those events to look at those impact cards and score those up. That will be the last element of the scoring. There's no other scoring for any of your other elements unless one of those impact of cards came up. Another thing that might have given the players a lot of scoring on the last few turns are the age three wonders. The age three wonders, as opposed to the early wonders in the game, give you an immediate culture point bonus. And usually they give you culture point bonus for having certain things. For example, if you discover the wonder the internet, you get culture points for how many labs and libraries that you have. And normally these give you a good chunk of culture points, somewhere between 10, 20, maybe even 25 culture points. So these age three wonders are very tempting to go after and be able to finish before the end of the game. Of course, if you don't finish them, you're out of luck. But I would recommend, if you're playing the full game, somewhere in the mid-game, you might want to go through that Age 3 Civil deck, look at the Age 3 Wonders, so that you know what those score for, as that might give you a direction to take your civilization. And that's it! Those are all the rules! Well, all the important ones anyways. I'll get to some of the nitpicks there in the footnotes section. But that's enough to get you to play the full game of Through the Ages. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, my voice is a little bit tired. This recording process has taken about a week, but we still got a few things to do yet. I'm going to give you a little bit of basic strategy and go over all those little yet important rules. Before I do that, let me say goodbye to my co-host for today. Thank you, Mr. Yellow Marker. If you are a glutton for punishment and like to spend approximately 20 hours scripting, recording, and editing a stupid podcast, then you might be Ryan Sturm. Oh, thank you, Mr. Yellow Marker, though I, I can't say I disagree with you. Goodbye, Mr. Blue Marker. We'll see you later. Mr. White Marker, it was a pleasure to meet you. And, of course, Sergeant Red Marker. I will say good day, talky-talky boy. A good day to you too, sir. Let's get to that hamster. Part three, the hamster. How to win the game. 
All right, so let's give you a couple words of advice as you launch into this four to eight hour experience of one of the longer versions of Through the Ages. In this game, you really have to make advancements in so many different areas. You can't just focus on one or two things because there's so many things that you need. There are six things that you need to be constantly improving. You need to be improving your ore and your food production. You need to get more actions at some point. You need to continually grow your military, your science, and find a way to be scoring culture points every turn. You can focus on a few of those more than others, but you can't ignore any of them. Immediately in this game, getting a little bit more ore and food production is critical. Some of the first few mining and farming technologies are pretty important to getting your civilization off the ground. That iron can be very helpful in letting you have, in increasing the amount of ore you have as, as having that ore is so important. The irrigation is a nice one to have too, though I would say of these two, ore is more important than food. If you get too much food, there's not a lot you can do with food and you're going to get stuck with it. So normally if you get up to about four food a turn, that's going to set you for a good amount of time. There are many routes to get more actions. Of course, the obvious route is to get a better government, but you can also get more actions from wonders and blue cards and from different leaders. But at some point, you probably will need to upgrade your government. It's hard to win the game with a despotism. Next, with your military, you can't fall too far behind in military. You will lose. The aggression cards will pound you if you're too far behind. And then later in the game, even if you think you're winning, people will play one of those war over culture cards and steal a lot of your culture points if you get too far behind. This is one of the most important aspects of this game is staying level with your opponents. You don't have to be a military bully. You can, if you want to, go after that, try to be the strongest, and then start picking on people. But you do need to try to stay if not level, at least not very far behind. If you get more than five points behind, that starts to be a danger area. Don't underestimate scientists. You can't advance your civilization if you don't have enough science. So get that second scientist quick, and getting upgraded science is a wonderful thing. And finally, you can't afford to not score any culture throughout the game. You can score less than the other players, but if you're not scoring any it's going to be hard for you to catch up. So as you can see, there's a lot going on there, a lot of things you're trying to do at the same time. Now the trick of this is don't try to do too many things at once. Though you need all those things, you can't do them all at the same time. You also can't do everything in the game. You're not going to be able to get all of those other technologies. There's the library and the theaters and the arenas, and if you try to get everything, you're just not going to be able to do it. A lot of times, actions are wasted by trying to do too much at once. You take cards that you're never going to have enough resources to play all those cards. So this is a game of balance and study growth and efficiency, making sure you're using all of your actions and making sure you're getting the most out of those actions. You can't afford to waste any. You also can get in a problem if you tie up too much of your population to any one technology. Say you make four farmers, that's a lot of guys there making one blue token. Your farm is tying up eight of your little markers, four of your blues and four of your yellows. You're much better off being able to get an upgraded technology and upgrading those. And finally, 
Remember that the goal of the game is to score the most culture points. There comes a certain point in this game where you have to stop doing some of those other projects that you were looking to do and start thinking about how am I going to score more points at the end of the game. You need to start looking at those if you're playing the full game. You need to consider those impact cards that you're playing. You need to start building towards how am I going to build that last big wonder at the end of the game and how can I make that worth more points and how can I score the most points because that is the object of the game. A famous noted ludologist has dubbed this point the Engelstein pivot. New players often miss this. They get so focused on improving their technology that they lose track of how close the end of the game is to occur. Pay attention to that deck of civil cards, and you need to make this Engelstein pivot from improving your civilization to scoring culture points. If you're playing the advanced game, that pivot point may sneak up on you and may pass you by. Keep your eye on that civil deck. If you're playing that advanced game, when you get to about halfway through that age two deck, you need to stop worrying about getting new technologies and start focusing on the things that are going to score you points because the player with the most points is going to win the game. That's all the strategy I have for you this time. Perhaps at some point in the future, I can convince a special guest to join me for some advanced strategy for this wonderful game. As there's so many paths to discover, so many things to explore, I think you're going to have a great time going through the ages. Part 4. Footnotes. Now, this game has a lot of little rules, and it's unlikely that you're probably going to play it right the first time. So, this set of vegetables, as I like to call them, those little rules, is meant to be hopefully as a reference of some of the things that can be commonly missed. Some of the things I may not have even covered in the full explanation, just because there's so much to talk about, I mainly wanted to give you more of the big picture idea and try not to bog it down with some of these tiny specifics that are yet still important. And I might recommend, after your first experience of playing the advanced game or the full game, go back and give this footnote section a listen, because it's very likely that you probably messed up on two or three of these little important things, and that's what this section is here to do for you. Help you make sure by that third play or so, you've got all the rules down correctly. Because the rule book, it isn't really that great as a reference tool in just the way that it's set up. So I think I've got about 25 different uh, vegetables here. And let's try to run through them as quickly as you can. But hopefully these things will help you make sure that you're playing the game completely correctly. Again, of course, if I was teaching the game, I wouldn't go through all of these with the players. I would just bring them up as they sort of become relevant. Okay, so first of all, the setup. The number of players that you have affects a good number of things. First of all, if you have only two or three players, you're going to remove some of the cards from the civil deck. They say three plus and four plus. Make sure to sort those out before you get started. Next, if you're playing two players, you do not use the packs. The number of players also affects how many cards automatically disappear off the card row. And you can see that by icons on that card row. The age A cards, they get set up in a little bit of a funky manner. The events are the dark cards. There's more than six there. You're going to shuffle those up and put out a starting event deck 
based on the number of players. With two players, you always have an event deck of four. Three players is five. With four players, the deck size will be six. And if you remember how those work, once those, if in a two-player game, once those first four disappear, you're going to replace them with the last four that were played in the future events deck. The A-Civil cards, on the first turn, these work a little bit differently. You set all those up. Remember that setup turn, players choose a certain number of cards and then they produce. During that first round, there is no slide down. Don't slide down in between players' turns. When it gets back to the start player and everybody has chosen their starter cards, knock out the automatic cards that get slid out, slide down all the openings, refill the track, any leftover A cards at that point are removed from the game. You don't use all the A cards. Then the start player takes their turn, and after the start player's standard first turn, then you'll start refilling with the age one cards. And at this point, you will slide down the card row after each player's turn. Remind players about the destroy or disband action, that they can spend an action to bring a yellow worker off any technology back into their worker pool. This can be a very useful tactic if players overcommit to a certain technology, which can happen and it can be a useful thing to do, even though it's kind of a waste. The leaders, you are restricted to only only drawing one of each age. If I draw an age one leader, I'm no longer allowed to even draw any more age one leaders. So think carefully before you pick up that leader as it's the only one from that deck you get to pick up. Remember that the wonders work a bit differently. They cost extra actions. When you get your second one, they go directly into play. You don't have to play them and they do tie up some of your blue tokens. Sometimes you can play a stage of a wonder for free and when you do that, you're just gonna have to use one of your blue tokens from your bank. It's kind of funky. Don't forget about the hand limit. You have a hand limit based Based on the number of those kinds of actions that you have. To start off, you can only have four white cards, two red cards. With the civil hand limit, you just are not allowed to pick up cards if you hit that hand limit. And you can't just discard cards for fun. You only discard them through obsolescence or you have to play them. The military hand limit, remember you draw at the end of your turn. You don't discard till after you've done your political phase in your next turn. So usually at the end of your turn, you could have a bunch of cards. You could have you know five or six of them. After you played that political action at the beginning of your turn, that's when you would discard. And when you discard, you're allowed to discard them face down so nobody knows what you're getting rid of. Next, the blue special technologies. These have a funky rule in that you can only have one at a time of each symbol. There's different categories of them. There's a, a law one, there's a, a compass one, there's a war one, and there's a building one. Let's say I built the war one, the one with the cannon symbol on it in age one. If I build the cannon one from age two, it replaces the previous one. So you can only have one of each type. So normally it's bad to sort of kill off the other one by getting a new one. Though it typically just improves upon the card you just got rid of, you're essentially losing that ability and would be better off doing something else with those resources. But they're not cumulative. The worker pool, sometimes I think people initially think you can only have one of those in there at a time. Remind your players that you're allowed to have two, three of those guys if, if you have extra actions and the only thing you can do is get a worker. Sometimes that's a good thing to do to have some extra workers there. The other thing that can be a bit confusing is where do the yellow markers that represent buildings or military units go when they are destroyed or if the warriors are sacrificed? If those go away, where do they go? 
do not take them off your board and put them in the main stock. They go back to your population bank. So whenever you lose a yellow marker, they go back to your population bank. Same thing if you lose resources, they go back to your blue bank. If you put them back in the stock, you're going to be sad pretty soon as your bank will empty out. If a card makes you lose a population, you get to choose where you lose it. Usually, if you have a free guy in the worker pool, you'll take that guy from the worker pool and put it back in your population bank. If you're unlucky enough not to have any extra guys there, you'll have to choose one of your buildings to lose that population and, in effect, blow up that building or that military unit. You'll pick one of those yellow markers that are in use and put it back in your population bank. Next, there's something on your player aid after consumption that says you lose points if you can't feed your people. I've never seen this happen. It, it seems very rare. The reason is because your farms produce before you have to pay that. The only time I think this would become an issue is, is if you've lost your farmers for some reason, but I haven't seen it happen. It seems, seems somewhat rare that you would starve out your civilization. Another rule about picking up cards, if you already have a technology, you can't pick up the same one. So there's, it's not fair defensively picking up cards you already have. If you already have the iron technology, you can't pick up the other one just to be a jerk. Same thing applies for any of the technologies. You cannot pick up two of the same. What is a technology? This is something players sometimes forget. It's not real clear on that player aid. Technologies are anything that costs ideas to play. So pretty much all the cards except for the action cards, the wonders, and the leaders are all technologies. Pretty much all of the civil cards except for the leaders, the action cards, and the wonders, all the rest are all technologies. A reminder that discovering a technology, no matter what technology it is, is a white action. Sometimes it makes sense intuitively to think that if you discover a military technology, one of those red cards, it would cost you a red action. But that is not true. Any technology you discover costs one white action. Then putting units on the red card is red actions. Next, let's define what levels of buildings are. A lot of the cards refer to giving you points based on the level of the building or something else depending on what level that building is. The level of building is indicated by the aged number at the top of the card. So age ones are one, age twos are two, age threes are threes. A buildings or your starting technologies are equal to zero. So for example, let's look at the labs. The A level is philosophy, the level one is alchemy, level two is scientific method, and level three is computers. A card might ask you how many levels of buildings you have. That doesn't really matter the cards that you have. It matters the yellow markers that you have on those cards. So say I had two yellow markers on the computers and one yellow marker on the scientific method. Computers are level threes. Scientific method is twos. Three, six, eight. I have eight levels worth of science buildings. Or for another example, Isaac Newton gives you extra science equal to your best lab. So if my best lab was I had one worker there in the scientific method, that is an age two, so I'd get an extra two science each turn. If my best scientist was a philosopher, philosophy is an age A building, which is equal to zero. Isaac Newton is not impressed by philosophers and gives you zero extra science each turn. Next, don't forget about the urban building limit. When you are a despotism, you have an urban building limit of two. That's represented by a gray house with the number two in it. 
What that means is you can only have two of any one kind of urban building. You can only have two labs or two temples, no matter what levels of buildings those are. Next, a reminder on revolutions. When you get a new government, there's two ways to do it. You can play the government for the cheaper amount by spending all of your civil actions in that turn. You don't even get the extra ones after you change your government. You have to spend all of them. You can't take any other civil actions that turn. The other option is to spend extra technology, the number in the parentheses, and then it only costs one civil action, but you're going to have to spend more of your ideas. And in this case, you would get the extra actions because you get those extra actions immediately. You know, you would mark the one that you spent or any others that you had spent already this turn. But if you got additional actions from doing a peaceful change of government, you'd get to use those extra actions immediately. Same thing when you build the pyramids or code of laws. When you get that action, you get it right away and you can use it that turn. Let's talk a bit about those events. One thing that's commonly forgotten when playing those events is scoring points when you play a green card, an event or a territory. When you play an event or a territory, you score one, two, or three points based on which age of the game you're in. Don't forget, do that first before you flip over the card and say what it does. Some of those events might come out that might say the strongest player or the weakest player. When an event comes out and states that, sometimes there could be a tie. If there's a tie, the ties are broken in favor of the player whose turn it is currently. And if they're not involved, the tie would be broken in favor of the player whose turn was about to go next, and so on. The idea being that whoever just had their turn had the last opportunity to get stronger or get whatever the card is asking for. So if those events come up and refer to something and there's a tie, the current player wins the tie or the player who's going to have their turn first. This is also important at the end of the game. When those impact card comes out, if there's a tie, the start player is going to win those ties. So be wary of that. Now that's only for those green events that come up that give something to the player who has something something. The aggressions work differently. With the aggression, you actually have to be stronger than someone to play an aggression on someone. You are allowed to sacrifice units to do that. And then they only have to match you. If there's a tie, then the defender has canceled the aggression. One more note about those event cards. When you shift the cards from the future events to the current events, any older age cards get placed on top of the deck, shuffled separately. So say we're going to have a stack of five that's moving from the future events to the current events. Sometimes you get a mix of, say, age one and age two cards. What you would do is you would separate them face down from the age one and the age two cards, shuffle the age one cards, put them on top of the age two cards. So the age one events will always come out before the age two events. Reminder on colony bids, you can only bid as much as you can pay. And remember, you always must sacrifice at least one unit. You might have bonuses, you might have bonus cards, but you must at least kill one of your military units. Remember that you can use your tactics if you want to send a whole army. When you get the colony card, you get that immediate bonus as well as that permanent long-term bonus. You keep those colony cards right there in front of you because you could use them to get some bonus points maybe at the end of the game. And also there's even cards that allow other players to steal them from you. So that's why you keep them in front of you. 
Next, at the end of the age, I already talked about a little bit of confusion. You don't obsolete things from that age, but from the previous age. And when you're doing all that obsolescence things, it's easy to forget to swap out the military card deck. When you hit that second age, you need to take off the military cards from age one. People won't be drawing those anymore and put out the military cards for age two. When you get later on, those tactics cards, some of them will have parentheses. What the parentheses mean is if you have a really old unit, you're going to get the smaller bonus. Some of the age two tactics cards have parentheses because that means if you use an age two tactics and you still are using your level A warriors with them, you're going to get the smaller number. Same thing with the level three tactics if you're using A units or age one unit. You have to keep somewhat modernized to get the bonus. Speaking of the tactics bonus, we need to talk about the Air Force. The Air Force is a special unit that isn't required on any of the tactics, but you can add Air Forces to any armies that you have. So Air Force is a technology, you have to get it and you would play a unit on there. And then you can add one Air Force to any army. And when you do that, you get the Air Force's strength of five, but you also get an additional amount of strength equal to the tactics bonus of that card, effectively doubling the tactics bonus on that card. Say I had the Era 3 Tactics Entrenchment, which requires one infantry and two artillery, and it has a tactics bonus of nine. So if I had one infantry and two artillery, I would get that tactics bonus of nine. If I added an additional air force to that, I'd get the strength of five from the air force, and I would get the tactics bonus again of nine, so that air force would give me a bonus of 14, really giving you the ability to beat up on your opponents. You are only allowed to get that bonus with one air force per army, and you have to play them in addition to the components of that army. You can't use them like as a replacement for anybody in that army. One thing that can be an issue is that your amount of ideas and military strength are limited to the numbers on the tracks on the game board. While we're talking about military, an important rule at the end of the game is when you reach the final turn of the game, when you get to that age four, players are no longer allowed to sacrifice their units to upgrade their strength. The reason being is because since you don't need strength anymore, everyone would just sacrifice all their guys, which would be kind of silly. So once you hit that last turn, you're not allowed to sacrifice units anymore. That's very important. Also, a reminder that the difference between an aggression and a war is you cannot use defense cards in a war. They're only allowed for aggressions. One of my final vegetables here is a reminder about the loss of two yellow tokens at the end of age one, two, and three. When playing the full game, this is like a little one sentence at the end of the rule book. So this is one of the most commonly forgotten rules in the game. It really adds to the experience and increases that tension. So don't forget about that at the end of age one, not at the end of age A. Make players all lose two yellow tokens from their population bank. Put a little extra pressure on their happiness and their food. The last thing I would remind you of is just to make sure to get all those steps of production. There's actually seven different steps of things that you need to do when you're done taking your actions, your action phase. Go through it in the same order so you develop sort of a routine so you don't miss anything. Otherwise, you will be a little sad at the beginning of next turn. Here are the seven things you need to do. 
get your culture points, get your science points, bring up your food, pay your food for consumption, get your ore, pay corruption if you have it, draw your military cards. Draw your military cards last so that you remember to do all the other stuff. Science, culture, food, consumption, ore, corruption, and cards. Got it? And a last suggestion is while the previous player is doing all those other things, the next player can go ahead and get started. They can set up the card row and start playing their turn. Because any game with the length as long as this one does, you want to find ways to keep the game moving. You know, having a four-hour game is much better than having an eight-hour game. So try to keep people moving. Finally, there are several variations at the end of the rulebook, and there's one of them I want to point out because it's a pretty good variation, and this is the no ganging up variant. We talked about if you have a weaker military strength, you're going to start to get picked on by the other opponents. This is particularly bad if you are playing in a three or four player game. Whereas according to the rules, if you're playing a four player game and you're five military strength behind or so, the other three players could nail you three times in a row. Bang, bang, bang. And you will be in really rough shape by the time it got back to your turn. Now, part of this is your fault but it can be very brutal. So I would recommend, especially the first few times you play this game, if you're going with a three or four player game, please use the no ganging up variant. What the rules of this variant state is that a player can only be attacked with an aggression or a war once per round. You mark that by using your colored cube. So read the rules for that and utilize that variant. Otherwise the game can be very punishing and you might have somebody who will want to quit about halfway through. Speaking of which, there are rules for quitting, which can be important as if you have somebody who needs to leave or they just get so far out of the game. Look up the rules for leaving the game honorably. And that is all of the rules I can think of. I might have missed something, but at this point, you know what? That's as much as I can do for you. So I hope that helped. I hope I allowed you to get a good handle on this game, get a handle on teaching this game. A couple final footnotes about this game is that there are several different editions that you might see if you play with some other people. The first edition, instead of little wooden discs, had like little clear plastic beads and, and they were a little bit harder to handle. One of the advantages of the newer editions is that they have those pre-printed civilization cards. Some of the older editions you had actual starter cards and it wasn't built into the main board. And so the, the newest edition is the edition that you want to have. But just be aware you might see some of those other things. The second printing also had some mistakes to the, the main scoreboard and the player boards. So if you haven't gotten it yet, then you're fortunate because I think they finally fixed all of the mistakes with the additions. The last note I would say is that there is a really nice implementation of this to be played online. Unfortunately, I don't think it's a very good learning tool if you don't know how to play the game unless you have someone right there with you to guide you through it. Or if you have two of you and you want to mess around with it together, you wouldn't want to get on there you know, by yourself and, and try to just play a game. You can't play single player or against AI. You have to play against other experienced players and you have to play the full game. It probably won't work out very well. 
but after you know the game this is really a nice way to play this game because as I said there's a lot of downtime during the action phase of the other players turn it could take between you know five and ten minutes for them to sort out really what they want to do playing this game one turn at a time is really a nice way to play it so so go ahead and check that out I'll put a link up there at the guild. It's completely free, and the name of the site is Board Gaming Online, so you could just Google that. And I'm going to wrap this one up. I am tired. This was a lot of work. If you appreciate this work, I urge you to really show some support for the show in some way, whether that's a donation or writing a review or just being a participating member of the guild. I really hope that you'll show some support for the show in some way. But that will wrap it up. We're going to wait for the poll. Uh, at the end of this month, we will find out what is going to be episode 30 which is chosen by you there at our guild on Board Game Geek. So check out the new Request Geek list if you haven't. I have a little extra special surprise in store on episode 31. I have a special episode coming up that I'm excited about. And if you weren't aware, our second How to Play video came out. We have a full How to Play explanation on video for Hansa Teutonica. So if you missed that one and you want to see a video version because you don't own the game, Randall Rasmussen is my hero. He did a great job, put a lot of hours in, in producing that great video. So check that out at our website or at the Guild. Ludology keeps moving right along there over at Ludology. Net, so I hope you're listening to Ludology. I have a special episode coming up that I'm excited about. And if you weren't aware, our second How to Play video came out. We have a full How to Play explanation on video for Hansa Teutonica. So if you missed that one and you want to see a video version because you don't own the game, Randall Rasmussen is my hero. He did a great job, put a lot of hours in, in producing that great video. So check that out at our website or at the Guild. And finally, I'm gearing up for Gen Con. I will be at Gen Con in Indianapolis this year. So if you're going to be there and you're a listener to the show, I hope you'll seek me out and say hello. Seems like I've used the word finally about 37 times in this episode. But finally, this is the last finally. We are finally done with this finally episode. And thank you all of you all over the world for your continued support. But for now, I think I need to shut out the light here at the How to Play Studios. My baby daughter may be awaking from her nap shortly. And actually, here she is, my 17-month-old daughter, Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn, do you want to say goodbye to these fine people? Bye. That's nice, and, you know, these people are very nice to have listened to me for over two and a half hours and even listen to me plug all that other stuff all the way to the bitter end. So I think we should thank these wonderful listeners. Can you say thank you? Thank you. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play Podcast. One, two, three, four. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play Podcast. How to Play is written, recorded, edited, produced, promoted, and financed by Ryan Sturm. How to Play is not affiliated with any game vendor or game company. If you like How to Play Podcast, I count on you to support it. You can help out by joining and participating in the guild, donating financially to the show, writing reviews or rating the show on iTunes, help talk up the show in your game group or on the forums at Board Game Geek. We have no contests, no gimmicks, no advertisements, no plugs to game websites or companies. All of the show's content is free of all bias, save for one, my own, and that is due to your own continuing support. Please consider supporting the show in some way today. 
I love to hear feedback from you, and I can be contacted through our discussion forum on the Guild at BoardGameGeek, or I can be emailed at howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. This podcast home on the web is www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Thanks again, everybody, and until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. Thanks for listening. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. For more information on these shows and much more, please visit www.thedicetower.com.